Hello and welcome to the first ever PwC podcast in New Zealand, a show in which we'll unpack some of the commercial goings on in New Zealand and take a look at what's coming up over the horizon. My name's Mark and first up we'll be chatting about those vague and dreaded two words, digital disruption. What does it mean? Does it sound too much like a replacement bus service? And what lessons can we take from PwC's recent report on the entertainment and media industry? As a sneak peek, PwC's entertainment and media outlook shows that one of the strongest growth sectors in New Zealand right now is subscription internet video, which, driven by the likes of your Netflix, Neon and Lightbox, is expected to grow in revenue by more than 16% each and every year until 2021. And this at the same time that television and cinema revenues are becoming more and more constrained. So today we'll be chatting to PwC directors Greg Doon and Andrew Jameson from our digital team to go over three things. In part one, we'll go over what's happened to the age-old entertainment and media industry. Up second, with the clock ticking and alarm bells sounding for all businesses, we look at which sectors are next in line for a rude awakening. And finally, we'll cover the all-important topic of finding opportunities in disruption by using the powers of rapid prototyping and genuine customer insights. After all, what better industry to learn from than the most disrupted sector potentially ever? Welcome to the first ever PwC podcast. How are you both doing? No, oh, really well. Good. Good. Yeah, really good, thank you. Um, we're talking today about the entertainment and media outlook. Um, so what have been some of the key findings, do you think? Maybe start with you, Greg. Maybe anything surprising that's come up. What, what's really uh, top of mind for you? I mean, I think that the overall trends are as expected. Um, the biggest surprise, I guess, is the acceleration of, um, of streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I say it's a surprise, um, AJ, you probably say it's it's been coming about time yeah um and i think it's a it's a reflection obviously of the uh the uptake of netflix and, and amazon uh but also a, a behavior change um of customers to start looking at traditional uh, channels in, a, in an online context as well um so so that's the, the de- that's definitely the big winner and the associated advertising models that, that go with that so you'd argue aj that it's not surprising Look, I think uh, New Zealand is very insular by definition as a market and if you, so Greg and I both spend a lot of time in digital businesses offshore uh, and New Zealand operates at a lag in a lot of digital respects Um, and part of that is the vagaries of the shape of our industry which is that some of our infrastructure has taken a while to come on board uh, and with that is even things like uh, cost of data, uh, connectivity, you know, some of the actual rollout of infrastructure as well, mm-hmm. which means that the behavioural trends need to be supported by the infrastructure and if those are in, in a lag then, the, then these business models are also in a lag. I think from, from AJ's perspective, <coughs> you've got to agree, if you run one of the major media companies in New Zealand, um, there should be nothing that surprises you. Now some of the percentage uptake may be slightly different than people would have expected, but the writing's been on the wall for the models that have propped up New Zealand's media industry traditionally for a period of time now. Uh, And it is a matter of getting those infrastructure elements and the consumer behaviour to catch up. And um, there's been been big warning signs in the global market, um, and really it's time for our media industry to, to respond um, and uh, really look at how their models are going to uh, compete with these. Yeah, some of the things from the finding were around music and, and music streaming. So we can use that as a good example where uh, Spotify has been around, I think it's been around for around 11 years, mm. and I've got a CD collection at home, which I don't listen to anymore, yeah. completely Spotify. But it's been around for so long, it's almost often like the warning sign has been there. I think, I think that 
music industry is its own special case. Uh, so the music industry, the history of the music industry, if they have fought tooth and nail against technology going back to gramophones. They fought against long player records when you went from 75 RPM to 33 RPM because they thought they were giving away too much IP. They fought against tapes, they fought against CDs, uh, they fought against microdiscs and they fought against any online music, MP3s as well. Uh, the irony is that probably today more music is listened to by more people in more parts of the world than ever before. So that actually, and there's, a, there's probably a parallel there in the media industry as well, is that actually media consumption is, 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 is it's, it's ubiquitous. You know, you watch people uh, digesting media anytime, anywhere on their phones constantly. Uh, and what's actually hasn't caught up with that is the business models that support that. So how do these uh, content generating businesses make money from the consumption of media and digital devices? Absolutely, and I think the media, um, the music industry has, has um, shown the model for the video industry, and that is an infrastructure challenge as well, right? Because <coughs> streaming um, video is just a more difficult concept than streaming media when it comes uh, streaming music when it comes to um, uh, to um, the bandwidth that's required. And what you've seen from a music perspective is you've seen a triple disruption over the last ten years, um, and it's remarkable to look at exactly that CD collection, which. Um, uh, I clearly remember a friend of mine throwing, uh, sadly throwing his out when he was moving to a, to a smaller house because he didn't need it and that was when he had an iPod, yeah. right? And um, you know, the iPod has become a redundant device uh, in that same period of time. So you're looking at change driven by consumer behaviour. Um, and AJ's point about most more music being consumed, absolutely. And, and everybody wins from that, right? Um, even the artists, right? Mm. And for every Metallica and Taylor Swift, um, there cool. are a number of different artists that will embrace those mediums and, and get their music out there in a, in a, in a different way, in a broader way. Because it's not just about entertainment media, this is almost like a, a barometer for every business, because every business is going to be disrupted, many have. Um, it's only a matter of time almost, so the music industry is a good example. And when we look at the evolution from gramophones and then even almost to iPods and now streaming's kind of taken that over. Um, it's not just technology, is it? It's easy to think of it as a technology thing, but it's, like you say, it's the customer experience, it's the whole wrap-up. There's, there's an ownership model there that you've just touched on, which is, which is we're going from, you used to have a physical asset, then you had a digital asset, and now it's everything as a service. So the Pandoras and the Spotify's are, this is a stream service that you subscribe to that gives you infinite choice and, and access to an incredible back catalogue. Uh, uh, the downside being, well, the, the, the quid pro quo being you don't own the files, you, own, you buy access to the files. Absolutely, and I think that that's the heart of, uh, if you look at this, uh, this report, yes there are important nuances in the percentages of growth that certain markets are showing, but underlying it is a very important message for all industries. Um, and that ownership model, um, and people can talk about things like the cloud as much as they want to the point that it becomes a dead metaphor, but the reality is is that that's how people are behaving. And every industry will go through similar waves of this level of disruption. And it's actually, it's critical that New Zealand's other industries look at this report and look at what's happened in the media industry as a industry that's been disrupted a lot earlier than theirs, and see how a, the consumer behaviours won't go away, they won't change. So all of those defensive behaviours that AJ's alluded to, they didn't come to anything ultimately. Um, and what happened was it allowed these incumbents to come and own the space. 
and and it's you know the financial flows through the media industry through the music industry is demonstrably different than it was 20 years ago and you're seeing exactly the same thing happen in the uh, in the video and streaming video industries so um you've got to look at yourself if you're a financial services organization or if you are a retailer in new zealand and say what can i learn from those trends and the real underlying trend is that consumer strength that consumer behavior that drives the models that are best for consumers at the end of the day and if you're not tuned into that and agile enough to respond to it then you will go the way of the media businesses in new zealand that are directly affected by what's what we're seeing yeah i was thinking if i was a business in new zealand today mm -hmm. and i'm looking at the amount of disruption that's happened in the print industry um, and other media industries I'm thinking, I don't want that to happen to me. Obviously, the investments are sometimes significant investments. Where do I place my chips? Is it in the technology? Is it is it in the data analytics side? Greg, Greg, give a shot at that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go at it, but AJ's gonna have some, some interesting experiences as well. And the first thing you actually need is the ability to move quickly. And most businesses in New Zealand, they're gonna get a warning sign, right? So the disruption usually happens abroad um, uh, in some shape or form first, right? So, so what you need to be able to do is respond quickly. And actually most uh, organizations in New Zealand aren't built as well for that as we'd like to think. Um, we should be a very agile um, uh, economy in that way, and our businesses should be, but we tend to have adopted the scale models of, of, uh, from abroad rather than the agile model. So that's that's probably the first one, is to be able to move quickly. Uh, the second one, which I think AJ can talk about a little bit more, is it's got to, you've got to understand the customer and how the customer's changing, because it's not linear, right? And it'll happen, it'll happen very quickly. Yeah, I, I think that's right. The, the, the bit that we usually come back to is that the, ultimately there'll be a technical overhead, but that's not where you start. Where you start is what are the problems that you're solving, either for the consumer or for your business model. I think Greg's right is that we actually have the advantage of, you know, William Gibson's quote is that the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed. Uh, you can look at offshore markets and see what's coming down the pipe quite clearly, uh, which allows you to to assemble a response against that. We spend a lot of time talking to businesses about disruption. Um, uh, the the framework that we use for that is is really to get them to focus on where their uncompetitive their competitive advantage lies. So where is the where is the bit that they can defend that other people can't attack them on, uh, and usually that comes down to a clear distillation of their value proposition and also a clear distillation of who their customers are and who their important customers are. Uh, yeah, you go. Well, no, I think I think you're absolutely right in what that. Uh, allows you to do is look at your forecast and find out what part of that's vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. when you actually say, where it's, what, what's our revenue structure going to be in five years' time, um, you can deconstruct that and you can say, well, actually, there's probably 30 or 40% of that that's quite high risk. Uh, and you can break it down and you can come up with strategies, exactly the approach that AJ is looking at. How can you protect that or how can you grow other streams to replicate it? I think the biggest challenge that we see is this idea that it's not really here, it's mm. not really happening. And if I think of the conversations I've had with New Zealand media companies over the last four or five years, where they've just sat there and gone back to the habits and models that have served them well in the past, because I think there's this view that, well, that's what I've got confidence in, and I know that. 
So, so it takes a lot to change and to take a risk around that. But history has shown over and over again that's not going to get you where you need to be. So there is a boldness that's required by the leaders of these businesses to take some risk. Um, and it's about trading the risks off, right? So yes, it's risky to have an innovation or an agility program that, that has some funds in it that could go into some short-term um, uh, results. But it's far more risky not to have that. I almost feel like the word disruption hasn't been enough. Yeah. If I hear the word disruption, I think of having to, my, my train's delayed, or my yeah. TV's, the neighbor's TV's on too loud. Uh, I think to, to Greg's point about the cloud disruption sometimes becomes unhelpful. The, the other part about that is that we spend a lot of time talking about disruption from the position of defense. So what am I defending against? Who's going to disrupt me? Where's the business model, the economic inversion? inversion? What's, what's the consumer behavior that's going to ruin my current business? I don't have a huge amount of sympathy for that because the reason that industries get disrupted is that newcomers can come in and use better, cheaper, more current technology to assemble basically exponential growth in a value proposition, uh, which the incumbents actually have the ability also to do. They just are quite often busy dealing with BAU. Doing the, doing the things that they've always done uh, and, and don't assemble the resources to be able to test and learn and figure out what's happening next with their consumers. Absolutely. I think there's also, companies get good at stuff over time, right? So if you look at uh, any industry that has thrived in new models, so I mean, take a completely separate example, the pharmaceutical industry, right? So the view is by 2025, uh, 20 to 25% of pharmaceutical industry's revenues will come through some sort of digital channel, i.e. a mobile device or app that's embedded to some um, uh, application, either external or internal, that allows um, you to monitor your health, right? That's a huge slice of, an, of a very, very big industry. Now, the early plays in that are being made by the pharmaceutical companies that were best at doing digital marketing. Now, it seems like a really weird link, right? But basically, they, they developed the muscle memory of doing technology and digital development you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s well and better than the others. And then they've been able to take that capability and point it at product development. Okay, And it works. So all of these things, when we come down to why Netflix user experience is so good, they've developed that muscle memory and they've focused on it and they've prioritized it to sit there and saying, right, there's a user interface, we know that's what our customer needs, we understand it, and they've developed it. So that's key, right? So they've seen and understood where their competitive advantage is gonna be, and they've made sure that they've built those capabilities. And in theory, at scale, a bigger organization should be able to do that better, but the problem is they're yeah. still focusing on their old models, right? Yeah. And they're sitting there and having that defensive view that AJ's talking to about saying, well, I'm gonna protect that, um, and, and that's where my energy and my best people are going to go to rather than focusing on the stuff that's really going to be important to consumers in five years' time. Yeah, and, and you're in an environment where those opportunities are available for everybody. And if you cast your mind back to 2004, which is an arbitrary date, uh, you know, creating a website involved hand-cutting code, uh, your payment gateways weren't open source, 
uh, your content management system was hand cranked. Like these things actually cost a lot of money. Like it was a big ticket item, yeah, tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah and, and hard to do and hard to shift. Uh, you people who were doing things like um, A/B testing, so testing multiple interfaces with consumers, that was an expensive undertaking. Today, you can set up an e-commerce-enabled website in an afternoon on your own for no money. Uh, and you can test a couple of versions of that and see what works and, and you can build from that. And you know, so, so for larger organisations, you need to be very clear that what's stopping you isn't the technology and it's probably not the capability. It's actually making a decision that these things are important and that you want to test and learn and you want to find out much more clearly what it is your customers want. If the risk appetite so low as we mentioned in New Zealand are, you know, it's lesser than some places around the world. And muscle memory comes into play later when disruption really starts cranking up. Is there a case now that if you experiment with smaller amounts of, of digital products or services in some way, you'll be able to ramp that up and scale it up and see what works? Yes. But yeah, I think I think that's an interesting point though, that that why would you wait until you can until that risk becomes manifest before you act? So I, you, you know, you, you, yeah, you, you're not, you're not. What what you're saying is that you don't know what the disruption will be, but it's coming. Whether it's consumer behaviour or technology or a big um, offshore incumbent stepping into the market, uh, the fact that it hasn't manifest means that you've still got the ability to respond. So you should be assembling that that now, uh, and and giving it the the import that it, that it deserves. Absolutely, and I think it's interesting. And AJ spoke earlier about the things we do with clients to to um, unpick what that disruption may be and where it may come from. And, and one of those things is, is looking at forecasts and unpicking the the revenues that might be that might be um, vulnerable. But another one, which is which is probably far more enjoyable, is is we actually um, run disruption games with executive teams where uh, we split people into groups and teams, and we actually uh, allow them to, to play a scenario where, where an incumbent's coming in or they've yep. been given a, a war chest or a fund to start their own organisation. Yep. And if you split these groups into sort of six people and you have a number of attackers and defenders, A, it gets the um, creative juices flowing a little bit more in a, in, a, in a group, but B, it's remarkable how similar all of the attacks and all of the defenses are because they know, they know where it's going to come. Yeah. And they sit there at the end of that those sessions and they're just aghast going, well, it's pretty obvious that it's X yeah. and that we need to start doing stuff around that. And it's, a, you know, in, in a day, you can come to a point pretty quickly um, where there's a pretty strong understanding of the fact that we've got to invest a little bit of money in this pretty pretty soon or you know the door's wide open. They're, they're fascinating sessions so so we've done these across industries for you know grocers, banks, insurers, media companies uh, and without us priming any sort of a, a, an outcome for it the the result is always for both attackers and defenders, they play in the same space, which is where is the business currently got its unfair competitive advantage? So where, where is the crown jewels? What is the bit that you can defend that actually you make money from? It's, quite, it's actually quite fascinating, yeah. When you do sessions, I know AJ, you've done, we've done some work for around co-creation. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, do you, who do you have involved in that generally? <coughs> from the client side, so we like, uh, where we want to, play in that sort of situation is who's in charge of the strategy. So uh, a full executive team would be an ideal uh, and senior leadership team beyond that. I think that's that's definitely a part of it for the for the um, uh, for those strategic sessions. Mm. But it's also really important to mix it up. 
So what you find is there's usually still a very big disconnect between those individuals and uh, any day-to-day um, -day understanding of the customer frustrations and problems that are being solved. Um, and listen, that's not generically true, um, and I know execs are, are getting better at trying to understand that, but there is nothing more powerful than having either A, real customers, uh, or B, people who deal with real customers every day in those sessions. Now, we just did uh, a piece of work uh, our Wellington office with a very major um, organisation in New Zealand where there were 75 of their leadership team, so exec and all of their senior leaders, um, and they were, uh, by the way, turning up for a sort of pretty standard workshop, and actually they were ambushed. Um, by 30 customers um, and had to do customer testing with those customers as the first session of the day and it was eye-opening and the feedback was remarkable because they sat there and it set the tone for the entire strategic workshop for the next two days. So those sorts of things are really, really key. Yeah. And look, this is actually quite simple and it's easy to, to, to look back and say that, right? And businesses, are, when you look inside them, are very complex mechanisms, right? But when you look outside them and you look at the actual value proposition and interactions you have with your customers, they're pretty simple. And there's no, nothing like a real customer to bring that simplicity to light and to actually focus you on what's really important, not just now, but will be patently very important in five years' time. Well, people seem very eager these days to give you feedback on things. Mm. Um, Over-eager. Yeah. Sometimes over-eager. We love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a massive way to get feedback and maybe alter your strategies to go along I think of new products or new services and new ways yeah. to deliver it. Yeah. It's a huge opportunity that probably hasn't been that in the past. No, no. Uh, look, and the that richness of that return path is, is huge and uh, to Greg's point, it's quite interesting that often we struggle getting businesses to step out their front door and talk to their customers. Uh, we did a very similar session for um, a media company where we did that. We, we guerrilla recruited some some media users uh, and got them with some clipboards and got them to interview them. What was interesting to me is that their assumptions about how consumers in interact with their titles was based on very specific pigeonholes is that you have a customer segment that reads this title uh, and another customer segment that reads this title and watches this show and listens to this radio station. When we got them in front of these people, they're like, good God, this is amazing. These people read more than one newspaper and watch more than one TV station a day. And, it, it, and basically they began to realize, in fact, we the segmentation is probably useful for selling advertising, but other than that, it actually doesn't reflect consumer behavior at all. And, and yeah, for what of going on a bit of a rant, it's remarkable how many organizations believe they know the customer because they do qualitative surveys um, quarterly to a group of, uh, or a panel, right? And it gives them no understanding of what's driving a customer to behave the way they are. So there are, there are ways of doing research that will give you very different depths of understanding. Um, and there is nothing um, that is more valuable than sitting down with customers with your product or with prototypes of new products and actually getting their response and reaction to it. And that is so many times more valuable than a broad quantitative survey which gives some indications about, as AJ alluded to, segments or views. And it's, and it's remarkable because that traditional way of interacting is still probably the standard way that customer insights teams and organizations work. Um, and yeah. it, it just isn't giving the leadership of those businesses the insights about what their customers really need and how they're changing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you need both. 
So, the, so the, the, we've, we've, the way that everybody has digital devices 24-7 now means that the digital exhaust that we leave behind is hugely rich for companies. Um, so absolutely just mine that, get whatever you can from it. Um, but that's not all of it. Uh, I, as an example, which I'll, I'll just a brief diversion is that I did some work for an airline in the Middle East some years ago, uh, which was v and, um, very, very focused on online conversions of airline seats. The data told us that uh, the Emirates was very, very strongly an iPhone um, geo geo geography. The, the work that we did then uh, optimised the, the sale path for iPhones. What we found was that actually it wasn't converting when we were in market. And it wasn't until we got on the ground uh, and did some qualitative research about Emirati households, which is actually the, the matriarch in the household does all of the booking and, and runs the household quite strictly, but doesn't do the paying. The, the husband does the paying and he's on a Blackberry. And if you have to do something for a Blackberry, it's a very, very different experience. Mm. And it wasn't until we did the data with the qualitative research that we actually got anywhere on that. Otherwise, it would have been a total fail. Great reference yeah. to BlackBerry in a conversation about disruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. yeah. I'm not thinking yeah. you brought it. You brought yeah. it back to. And, and look, and, and Black, so I've got a friend who's just had his BlackBerry decommissioned in the UK, for the the only reason the the last businesses standing for that were the 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 middle of investment banks because they were a secure device. So you know, you look at people mapping mapping. Um, cities against devices, and, and you can see this area of Blackberries that's known as Jurassic Park because it's just an antiquated device. Just <laughs> handing us the keys. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure about this. I, I loved. I had Blackberry. I loved it. Yeah, it, it worked really well. Um, I have a good segue now. You spoke speaking about the UK, and I know you've both spent time in the UK, and you probably have quite a wide perspective on things like digital disruption. Is there anything New Zealand is excelling at or falling behind? compared to businesses in major metropolitan global powerhouse cities mm. like Manchester. <laughs> I like the reference to Manchester, that's uh, <laughs> fantastic, obviously they're global powerhouse. Uh, um, listen, it's, it's really interesting, right? So there's one thing, as we were talking through um, the, the larger clients we work with, that's, that's really important to note. There are an enormous amount of very successful, uh, small to medium New Zealand businesses who have uh, huge export markets in both the technology sector and broader sectors who are mastering this stuff, right? And they are winning brilliantly on the on the world stage. And, and yes, there are the obvious poster boys of, of Zero and the likes, but there are literally um, scores to hundreds of other organisations that have um, yeah, the remarkable success stories. So the capability and the talent that is in New Zealand to do this stuff well exists. There is probably a mode difference between the traditional larger organizations that are in these what I would call comfortably competitive markets right um, where things just shift a bit more slowly so so I think there definitely is a capability gap between those smaller more agile businesses which are succeeding brilliantly um, I think we also look overseas a little bit too much at they do it right because um, there are definitely so take Manchester take BBC as an example right? I did a lot of work for, B, for with the BBC and their scale has meant that they do have a pretty well-established um, visual language and ability to, to, to bring in and develop um, digital innovation pretty well. They also spend £110 million a year on a website. Absolutely. And I'll give you a brilliant example of just the good and the bad, right? So um, CBeebies was by far the biggest um, kids' website. This is back when, before the days yeah. of the iPad, right? 
Um, and but the the BBC Trust, because it had uh, couldn't take revenue, uh, refused to develop apps and have apps because the partners uh, they had wanted revenue streams in a, mo- in a mobile view they hadn't had through web. So there was a three year debate with the BBC Trust to develop some apps. And during that period of time, CBBS completely lost its dominance mm. with the youth market because they had no presence at all on the iPad, which was the preferred presence. And we actually did a whole bunch of user testing, which is great fun, with uh, with four to, four to eight-year-olds um, on iPads during that period of time. And it was patently obvious that this video where you had this sort of kid holding a mouse and looking a bit blandly at a screen, because it's quite a, you know... And then the minute you give them an iPad, this these eyes lit up and they were playing. Like It was, it was patent. It was there in their customers' view that this device is how they want to interact with everything online. But it still took them three years to work through all of the nuances. So I think we can be harsh on ourselves and we've got to recognise that the scale of a lot of these overseas organisations allows them to make mistakes and to evolve in their own way. But I think what we've got to do, which New Zealand's always done well, is how do we take our scale version of that? And right back to AJ's point, you can set up a website in an afternoon. You can prototype and test four different versions of a website in a week, right? You just need to get the people dedicated in your business to do that. And it's straightforward. And all of a sudden, you're doing innovation, right? It's not a massive undertaking. Um, You just need to be willing to do it and to be willing to embrace that unknown. I think Greg's being politic. I think he's being... (laughs) Uh, too forgiving on the New Zealand web space. I think I think he's right. I think there are some absolutely international exemplars who know this well. They support fantastic customer experience with good technology. I think as a broad brushstroke, the New Zealand online is actually pretty in poor shape. So uh, the example I'll give is that I recently moved house, which meant that we needed to buy a whole bunch of household things. Some whiteware, some blackware, uh, you know, furnishings, all that sort of stuff. It, it, it was an infuriating process. The, the, the just general department store e-commerce, uh, it, w- it was absolutely heartbreakingly bad. And pro- you know, eight years ago even, you would have had an argument that says, we don't have the scale, the technology is prohibitively expensive, that doesn't exist anymore. No excuses. There's no excuses. We should be better at that stuff. If anything, we should be better than the rest of the world because we're a highly educated, technically literate, geographically dispersed population. So we we should actually be top of the tree for this stuff, and and we're simply not. Well, and I think the figures support that, right? So so whilst we've got um, some pockets of excellence, there are some industries that are particularly poor versus global standards. And I think that if you look at retail in particular, um, there is huge evidence, and BNZ do a um, quarterly survey that effectively shown that over the last, I think it's eight years now that it's been running, uh, overseas e-commerce sales growth has grown at two and a half times the rate of local e-commerce growth. So if you're talking about a competitive measure of who's doing it better, we're not. Um, Sorry, that, that number is growth in New Zealand yes. of domestic yeah, versus absolutely. international providers. So, so completely yeah, right. right. Yeah, so, yeah. so A, Joe Kiwi mm. is spending two and a half times more on a compound basis abroad on e-commerce sites, be it Marks and Spencers or Alibaba, or, yep. than they are with New Zealand domestic retailers. And the fact that 
one of New Zealand's major domestic retailers launched their first website last year. And um, I think in 1999, I helped John Lewis build their second website. It goes to show that there is a, you know, that muscle memory hasn't been as developed as it could be. Um, and it's interesting because if you look at those, you know, the different industries and how affected right back to the, the original topic of this discussion, right? So media, yeah, it was one of the earliest fuses to go, right? But retail's not far behind it. Okay, and it's been significantly disrupted globally. And if you look at the way the Argoses or um, yeah. uh, people like that are dealing with it, they now have very elaborate mobile in-store interaction models that have price checking capabilities and Wi-Fi, and you know, they're seeing huge returns on that. And you know, our retailers, unfortunately, are still arguing over whether or not they um, give free delivery on a new yeah. e-commerce website, right? So yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah. It's an opportunity too. Yeah. And it's, it's something we could probably talk about all day, but I should probably let you two get back to your day jobs. Fantastic. So thanks for joining us on the first ever PwC podcast. No Thank Greg you. Thank you. It's great having you. And thanks to our listeners out there for joining us too. If there's anything you'd like to hear discussed in upcoming episodes, we're eager to hear your thoughts and feedback. And you can do that via our website. And if you're interested in learning more and reading the entertainment and media outlook, you can find that on the PwC website too, which is at www.pwc.co.nz. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.